This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the Wharton School in San Francisco, this is Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is your host, Doug Collum. Welcome, everybody, to Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM Channel 132. Um, as always, we're broadcasting live here from the campus in Wharton, San Francisco, and uh, I'm your host, Doug Collum. We've got two interesting guests today. Coming up in the first hour, I'll be speaking with Carrie Lai, who is a, uh, a co-founder and managing director at, a, at Conductive Ventures, which is a newly formed $100 million enterprise software and hardware fund. Um, I met Kerry actually the first time he was in one of my classes way back when, and uh, it's it's uh, great to have him coming on board today because he can talk about uh, not only his experience that brought him to Conductive, but also he can talk about the trials and tribulations of starting out with your own fund. Uh, so we're joined now in the studio by our first guest, Kerry Lai, a co-founder and managing director at Conductive Ventures, a $100 million enterprise software and hardware fund. Kerry, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Hey, so let's start. Tell us about Conductive. What's what's the elevator pitch? What is it? It's newly formed, and you're right in the middle of it. And so, what is it? What do you What are you guys known for? So we're known for investing in the best and the brightest. Uh, we primarily want to invest in companies that are raising their Series B round of funding, where we can invest two to seven million dollars. Uh, again, in the enterprise software and hardware space, and focus predominantly here. I mean, from a geographical standpoint, mostly here in the Bay Area? Primarily in the United States. Um, that's an interesting fact that we can dig into. We'll get into yeah. that for sure but, because yeah. I've heard I've got lots of uh, Yeah, but primarily lots, in the U.S. inputs about that. Okay, yeah. good. So your background. So I know I know you have an MBA from Wharton. Yes. Um, uh, and since leaving Wharton, well, maybe since before join, coming to Wharton for yeah. the MBA, what, what's been your business background? So prior to Wharton, um, I did two years of technology investment banking at B of A Merrill. And then was that on the East Coast or the West Coast? Right here in the uh, Pyramid Building. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then uh, went straight to Institutional Venture Partners or IVP. Um, Which is an institutional VC firm, still very well known in the Bay Area. Very well known. Dates back to 1972, one of the original uh, elites on Sand Hill Road. Right. And uh, still doing very, very well um, on their 15th fund. Wow. Yeah. That's cool. At one and a half billion. So, um, I mean, I would have to say that IVP was is one of the foundational institutional VC firms here in the Bay Area. That's right. I mean, they've been around for a long time. They've been around forever. Um, and, and what did you do there when you were with those guys? I was an associate. So I was okay. on the ground literally learning everything. You know, the VC model is an apprenticeship model. Yeah. Where you're effectively carrying, you know, the, the books and the bags of all the managing directors, and that's how you learn. And you were doing that as you were here at Wharton? Correct. Getting, so you're doing both at the same time. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Well, and having our first kid. That's bur- Yeah. That's, uh, <laughs> that's a lot of balls up in the air. It's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. I don't recommend it. <laughs> so then what? So I um, got promoted, uh, stayed at IVP for a couple more years, and then had an opportunity to leave and take on a partner role at Intel Capital. So talk about that. Again, Intel Capital is one of the it's really one of the icons in the investment area. That's right. They are well known, probably in the you know corporate venture capital world or the right. CVC world yep. as kind of one of the elite. 
um, had an opportunity to really lead investments in what in non-strategic areas of investing. So you transferred <coughs> in as a partner to Intel Capital. I don't know right. what their management structure is. I didn't know they had partners as opposed to executive <coughs> directors or whatever. But yeah. So you came on board at a pretty senior level. That's right. That's right. Um, and had the opportunity to start leading my own deals, taking board seats. And what was really unique was at the time in 2011, they were really creating and developing a new team which would go after non-strategic investments. So financially oriented and were not dotted line to any business unit uh, within the company. You know, I do recall from my days as a lawyer, there was a time when, um, I mean, I'm choosing my words carefully here, but Intel Capital was hard to deal with because if if you were representing the company, Intel Capital would come in like an 800-pound gorilla and say, these are our deal terms. And by the way, we need to have certain specific clauses in the investment contract to protect Intel Capital's right as not so much as an investor, but as a company with its own strategic objectives. And there was a lot of sword crossing in the course of that. And then it sounds like there was, in effect, there was some sort of a sea change, or maybe people like you, Kerry, who came on board and said, we need to think about doing things differently. That's right. Can you, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth. So no, you that's exactly what happened. It. I yeah. think what happened was Intel saw that they began missing a lot of great deals like Facebook, like Groupon, um, like Zynga, and because, others. Because of this Correct. kind of this in, intractable position it would take on things. That's right. Basically, every time you looked at a deal, in the back of your mind, you were thinking, how is this strategically relevant? Yeah. Versus, is this a great deal? From a financial perspective. Correct. Yeah. And so they wanted to have a SWAT team that could go out and do financially oriented deals, just like every other firm on Sand Hill Road. And so it was a team created purely of um, ex Sand Hill Road professionals. So, so were you part of that new that new I was that new process? That's right, I was. So how hard was that? I'm, we're a little bit off task, but it's interesting. Yeah. How hard was that? You've got a super tanker called Intel Capital, and right. you're trying to change the direction of the super tanker by several degrees. How hard was that from a cultural standpoint within the company? So I think the the biggest thing was the brand recognition. Um, you know, the, the funny thing is, I think for a lot of uh, people, you know, when I came in with my IVP card, yep. unless you live in the Bay Area and you're in the entrepreneurial world, you don't really know who IVP is, but everyone knows Intel, right? And so that yeah. was really helpful. But you're right from, you know, your preamble that there was sort of this heavy uh, sense of what Intel Capital used to be. And so it was really about changing the hearts and minds of entrepreneurs that we were different and that the types of deals that we were doing uh, were just like the deals we did when I was back at IVP. And, as, and that was true to As form. a pure financial investor. Correct. That's it. Because I do remember Intel <clears throat> Capital was pissing several, many people off. Yeah. When you do, and, and word gets out that pretty soon, you know, right. Intel's hard to deal with. That's right. You know, they've got some really weird ass terms in their investment totally contracts. Totally true. And, we, you know, we kind of don't need to go to them for money unless, right. unless there's a compelling reason to do that. And that changed. Uh, so when I got there, we began doing, you know, Santio Road like deals. Uh, the term sheets were super clean, uh, you know, relative, you know, I would say very entrepreneur friendly. There was nothing really that uh, different from what I was doing before. And that was the goal. And so we were left alone. We didn't have, we weren't dotted line to some uh, GM of a business unit. You know, we didn't have any dotted lines. Our whole goal was to generate financial returns. Yeah. 
And that's what that that was, you know, our our scorecard at the end of the day. So, by the time you left, in effect, you undertook a rebranding exercise, if you will, in order yeah. to you're really changing the culture and the perception of the people who might benefit from an investment by Intel Capital. That's right. Where does Intel Capital stand today from a reputational standpoint? Well, by the time I left, the pendulum had swung purely from a uh, financial perspective back completely to a you know purely strategic. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I, I don't know this. Okay. Yeah. So uh, the former president of Intel Capital, Arvin Sidani, who had I been there a long the time, name. Yeah. Yep, uh, left, and then uh, a new gentleman by the name of Wendell Brooks. Um, okay. You know, came in, and again, the the pendulum really swung back to purely strategic. New sheriff in town, exactly. Yeah, okay. And so it was very unfortunate that you know the four years that I had spent there, really championing a new brand, a new way of doing things, went back to hey, every deal we do needs to have some element of you know strategic validation. Interesting. Yeah. So when did you leave Intel Capital then? Uh, Twenty fifteen. So three years ago. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. then, then what happened? Um, at that time, uh, I left with a colleague of mine to go start uh, a new fund. Um, and so we went on the road uh, to start uh, fundraising for a brand new fund um, at Intel. Is this conductive? No. Oh, a different one. Okay. A different one. Okay. Yeah. So it yeah. was called uh, Luma, Luma Capital oh, Partners. Oh, right. Okay. Um, went out. Uh, we met with 130 LPs um, over a year and a half. And it was... It was that's, brutal. That's heavy lifting. It's brutal. Uh, we ended up raising a total of eleven million, and oh, wow. we invested in three companies. And you know, we looked at each other and said, "Look, this is just not going to get off work. the ground. Yeah, yeah. it's just not going to get off the ground." And so we called it quits. Um, oh wow! I didn't. I, I didn't. I don't recall having seen that in, in the in the dossier that I've compiled on you. Correct. Uh, <laughs> it's something that yeah. I think. I think a lot of people. People always want to talk about the things that go well, not the things that didn't go well, but the true learning is in all the things that didn't go well. You know, we've said that many times on the program, which is yeah. uh, failure is a great instructor. Yeah. It's not fun while you're doing it. No shit. <laughs> <laughs> it's not fun at all. Um, so what What did you... So I don't want to dial too far forward. Sure. But your next step was, in fact, to form Conductive Ventures. Yeah, that's right. What, what, what was the key takeaway from your Luma experience where you were pounding pavement for Crossroads? <sighs> what, you said 130 LPs? And, yeah. Oh, man. I think the, the biggest, there were a couple. Uh, the, the key one is, you know, the best time to fundraise is actually when you're not fundraising. I know it seems obvious, and it's what I've told all my entrepreneurs, but the best time to fundraise is when you're not fundraising, which means that... You know, when you raise your Series A, you you can't just sit back and say, ah, oh, now right. I can yeah. hit my milestones and yeah. then in 18 months go raise my Series B. No, you're still on that treadmill. You're going to be raising your Series B the day after you close your Series A. So you're constantly you're building constantly. bridges, constantly exactly. building relationships. That's right. And that's, it never ends. Okay. So, and, and that pertains equally to the venture space. That's right. And when I was at Intel Capital, you know, I wasn't necessarily looking to leave and start my own fund. It wasn't even in the realm of possibility when I was at Wharton. It wasn't even yeah. something that I really yeah. wanted to do. I just felt like at the end of four years with the track record I had built, you know, I got this inkling like, huh, I feel like I want to do things on my own. You know, I want to create my own culture, my own brand. And even if it doesn't become, yeah. you know, in the realm of Sequoia or Greylock or Benchmark, I'm okay because... You know, I want to do it my way. For yourself. For myself. Yeah. 
doesn't need to, you know, it's not a number. It's not just about, you know, getting paid more. It's about doing it the way I want to do it without having 50 people tell me you should do it this way. You should do it this way. You should do it that way. So before we jump into conductive, I would guess, I mean, I don't know this, but Intel Capital didn't have this fundraising process. Isn't that balance Correct. sheet funded? There's there's one LP. There's one LP. That's called Intel Corporation. <laughs> you got it. Yeah. You got it. So you don't have the chance to build those relationships. That's right. Was that part of the issue? I think that was a big issue. So yeah. number one was you weren't constantly out there meeting LPs. And I think what I learned was that the LP community was totally different than the entrepreneurial community. Like how? Like who are the LPs? Again, scrolling ahead, but yeah. Conductive does have LPs. Yes. And so as categories, yeah. uh, how would you describe LPs to people in the limited partners, to people listening who don't know what that means? They're basically rich people or people who have aligned to rich and wealthy organizations. So they fall into endowments or uh, family offices. But basically, you need rich people, people of significant wealth to commit uh, you know, a certain amount of money in order to get the whole fund together. People and institutions, or in your case, mostly people? For us, it, we, we needed both. Yeah. At the end of the day, you do need both. Yeah. yeah. And at the end of the day, venture is one of those businesses where it's a trust business, right? For sure. You're asking someone to commit $10 million. Write a check for that size to you. To you. Immediately. Yeah. And, oh, by the way, I can't tell you which companies are going to be part of this fund yet because perhaps half of more haven't even been created yet. But just trust me, at the end of 10 years, you'll get three to five times your money back. Boy, that's a stretch. It's a huge stretch. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, the huge asterisk is there's also a thousand people behind me that look like me that, you know, went to the same schools that also went to, you know, studied at great firms and have great track records that are asking for the same thing. All right. So now we're going to jump into conductive. <laughs> yeah. Um, for people, hang on, just just for quickly, for people who are just joining us, I'm talking with Carrie Lai, who's the managing director and co-founder of Conductive Ventures, which just recently raised $100 million and focuses on enterprise software and hardware. Mm-hmm. Get that right? Yep. So, so now we scroll forward. Yep. Um, conductive Ventures, how did that start? And what, what's different? In terms of your experience today, you know, hundred million is a ton more than eleven million. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so a couple of things. One was we, uh, so my partner and I, we decided to just call it a quits yeah. at Luma. Um, we told our LPs we weren't going to call any more capital. Uh, I was completely burned out. Um, I have. Yeah. I came to realize that you know, raising capital and actually deploying capital are two very different skill sets, and some people are you know, more geared towards one or the other. So just to be clear about that, raising capital is when you're you're on the street begging LPs to write checks into the firm. Correct. And deploying money is when you're taking those checks and now you're investing them in portfolio companies. Exactly. That you're sourcing and evaluating and, and ultimately, hopefully, making investments in. Yeah. Yeah, got it. Okay. And what I didn't realize was when you fly under a large brand – like IVP raises, you know, one and a half billion in two months. That's astounding. That's yeah. not, it's not really sales. I call that order taking. Yeah. And so not to be confused, but when you go out and you raise, you know, you have your own shingle and your own brand and no one's ever heard of you before, it doesn't happen in two months. 
it's, it's again you're, you're you're evangelizing exactly yeah okay um you are mission selling right and so i i decided to you know, i was just so burned out personally i honestly what i wanted to do was just go back to a regular firm on sand hill road and just start deploying capital again yeah that's literally yeah. what i did wanted to do and for the so, next sounded easy at that point. Yeah. yeah. Uh, after trying to raise yeah. your own fund that didn't work out that, uh, you know, for the first time in my life, I, you know, had really failed at something in my career. Um, I was just at that point at that breaking point where I said enough's enough. Uh, so I pulled the ripcord and I started talking to a lot of firms and literally a good friend of mine, Jason Krikorian, who's at DCM, he's a general partner there. Okay. Said, Hey, you DCM should see is another venture firm, right? Yeah. yeah very okay. well known firm. Yeah. Uh, he said, Hey, you should talk, um, to, I've, I've got an introduction to an LP. Um, they're looking to spin up a new fund. Uh, and I just said, okay, uh, I'll take the meeting. Whatever. Why yeah, not? Yeah. I, it's not like I'm doing anything else interesting at yeah. this point anyways. Yeah. And so I, uh, sat down with this, uh, uh it turns out it, it was Panasonic. Oh yeah. I and, know them. And so, um, they had had their own. Uh, corporate venture capital right. uh, program called right. Panasonic Ventures. Um, they'd been in the Bay Area for 20 years. I, I didn't even really know they existed. Um, and they w really wanted to try something different, uh, which was to uh, invest into a brand new fund that was purely uh, financially oriented, um, just like any other firm on Sand Hill Road. Yeah. And set it up as a you know Delaware corporation, so an independent fund, um, off balance sheet, uh, capital, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. Um, take on other limited partners. Uh, oh, so, so they didn't, they didn't want to control it. I mean, they, they were going to be the long pole in the tent, but they were going to per permit other limiteds to come in. That's correct. Got it. Okay. Um, and so, so I, was that the genesis of conductive? That was sort of the genesis. Oh. Yeah. And so I met with them. I, you know, had not historically done a lot of business personally, um, in Japan. I don't speak Japanese. I'm yeah. not ethnically Japanese. Yeah. And so I had to really uh, learn a lot about, you know, um, how to do business in Japan and w there, what it's like. I, now, there's a co-founder who swims into view here, isn't there? That's right. So Who's... so after that kind of came to fruition, um, I wanted to, ha you know, I wanted to bring on someone and I wanted to do this differently than Luma. And so, a, you know, a really good friend of mine, you know, a super close friend of mine, he used to be my former roommate. Back, all, all, all the way back to college all days? the way back to uh post-college okay uh he was at kleiner perkins oh a, a very well-known and renowned firm on sandal road absolutely yeah and he was coming up on four years um he you know i've known him uh he was at my wedding uh, i was yeah. at his wedding we were just so close what's his name paul yay okay and i said paul i don't know how this is going to come together but if it does I think it would be tremendously awesome to work together and build conductive together. And he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't want to work for some boring Japanese corporate called Panasonic. I was like, no, 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 no. It's going to be totally different. Um, and so we literally got the docs done in about four months. We got it up and running and he came on board. And Panasonic was okay with uh, going beyond strictly Japanese companies or companies that had Japanese business connections. Correct. Okay. So it was a much broader mandate. Yes. The that... mandate was, we want you to make money. That's it. That's the mandate. Which is ha as it should be for a, a venture firm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, which was surprising to me because as a yeah. corporate, 
right? Having had the Intel Capital experience, you know, juxtapose that with my IVP experience, kind of in running in the back of your mind, oh. you're always wondering, okay, what is the strategic relevance? Yeah. But Panasonic did not have that stipulation. It was, we want you to make as much money as possible. And we're going to incentivize you just like any other firm. Now, what year was that? This was last year. Oh, so it's real, real recent. It's literally last year. So now talk about the $100 million fundraising exercise. Yeah. Because, I mean, now it's a different experience. You, you, have, a, you have a major corporate sponsor. That's right. But also you, they've opened... They, they've opened it up to permit other limiteds to come on board too. Did they make introductions to you, or they now, did? Now you're flying under a much, they a did. much brighter flag. They did. Right? They did. And so, what was the interesting thing was uh, they were super helpful, very supportive of you know having additional uh, yeah. uh, limiteds. To be honest, I said, look, everyone's always going to see this as an experiment, right? Um, at that point, uh, we had no investments. We only had a pitch deck, and we had my partner and I. Boy, this was like a, a, a blank slate. Exactly. Yeah. And I said, look, what if you commit $100 million in this first fund? We'll start investing it, but we'll start telling people our story at the same time. So this is the bridge building com exercise that you're, you're, starting th you're thinking forward already. Exactly. Yeah. And I said, in fund two, <clears throat> let's bring in other LPs who'd be interested in working with us. Because otherwise, we could easily spin our wheels for the next year, trying to go from, let's say, 100 to maybe 125, yeah. 150. Yeah. But we will be less focused on the investment piece of it. Because you're focused on fundraising. Correct. Yeah. And, and you got to do both. And you got to do both. Yeah. And so I said, why don't we just take the $100 million that we have, which is, by the way, a very generous-sized first fund for, for anyone, and we'll go ahead and invest it. And we'll have a much better story to tell people yeah. because we'll have investments. You can touch and feel all the things that we said we we're going to do. And since we've already begun the process of meeting with other limiteds, they're hearing the story, but they're also seeing the fruits of the story. Meaning that, you know, we meet them with them every quarter on a regular basis. We told you this is what, what we were going to invest in. This is actually what we invested in. You know, this is how the portfolio looks. This is how it's shaping. These are the returns that will hopefully generate um, all that. So so far so good. It's a little bit early to start anticipating how the f how the fund's going to go. But I mean, this is like a dream come true. It's like is, I mean, Panasonic in effect is looking steely eyed at you, Kerry, yep. and at Jason, and saying, you know, we we trust you guys. We figure you've got enough experience under your belt to go forth, right, and um, generate a competitive financial return. That's right. And it's the same, I'm just to ask the question, because this is a company that's making a strategic, well, it's a corporate venture capital, no, let me back up. It's a limited partner that is a company mm -hmm. with its own operating business. That's right. And when they, when they make a sizable contribution as a limited partner into conductive ventures, is their expectation about the financial return the same as if they were an endowment or a pension fund or an insurance company? Definitely. I mean, we're benchmarked against uh, Cambridge. So there's there's no relent here. I mean, they're looking as... No. Okay. Yeah. So this is a true uh, LP in every sense of the word. We're generating the the strongest financial returns possible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so let's let's... 
let's go back to the business model or the business plan of Conductive. So talk more about that. You said you're writing checks between two and seven million bucks. Series B or expansion stage, maybe you can start there. Well, what does that mean? I mean, for people who don't understand the vernacular that we use, you know, seed financings, Series A financings, right. Series B and so forth. You know, just categorically, what where, where do you put these companies when they approach you for a Series B financing? So we we use this term internally called early efficient growth. Three words. Yeah. Early because these companies uh, typically have between one to five million in revenue. Efficient because uh, they've raised a cumulative amount of capital that's about where they are in revenue. So if they've raised five million in capital, they're at about a five million dollar run rate or at five million in mm -hmm. revenue. And then on the growth side. They're typically looking to grow two to three hundred percent the year after we invest. So, Kerry, so, just to be argumentative here, yeah. I mean, this is this is what every venture, I mean, every fund that's beyond the seed stage, just kind of like this is every venture firm's goal. I mean, so you guys fit right in with about a million other VC firms, yeah. whether they're big or boutique. I mean, so how do you immediately? The question arises: What makes you guys different? So, I think I think two things. So, one, our fund size. Um, so we, unlike a lot of the big folks like Sequoia and Andreessen, every time they go up to bat, they're swinging for a grand slam, right? And so if you look at the, a lot of the Bay Area companies, San Francisco Bay Area companies over the last 10 years, I would actually argue that the majority of them are not very capital efficient, meaning that they raise tons and tons of money f hoping for big, big, big returns. Like Uber, I mean, they've raised, uh, I forget how much money, but it's in the billions, but they haven't nearly generated revenue rate. I mean, I don't know the data, but I mean, there are several iconic venture-backed companies yeah. that are in this category where they've taken all kinds of capital, right? but they're still trying, struggling to show a profit, if you will. Yeah, I think, you know... I I don't want to necessarily name names, Let's but stay away uh, from that. Stay I from agree because I'm, I'm, I don't have the data. I don't want yeah. to pick on anyone. Yeah, but <laughs> I would say that you know, what scares me is I'll take a look at an enterprise software business that's raised 25 million in revenue, and they're maybe about to do one million in revenue this year. Raised 25 million in capital, correct? But only, but only generated one in revenue. Yeah, yeah. Okay. To me, that's extremely scary. Yeah, because I'm wondering what the heck have you done with all your capital. Especially in enterprise software, which is so different than investing in consumer-based businesses, yeah. where you know enterprise software businesses usually grow in a step function: build a product, you start selling it. If it works, then you hire more salespeople and you grow, and so then you raise more funding to hire more people in order to grow, and so you grow from let's say selling across the U.S. to Europe to Asia, and that's how you grow typical enterprise. And those companies. are in step function. You go Correct. from development to commercialization Correct. to international and, and so on. Yeah. yeah. And so I think for us, we're very sensitive to the efficiency of the capital. And that is harder to come by these days in the Bay Area because it's so darn expensive hiring people. I mean, you're looking for a diamond in the rough, right? You and, you yeah. and about a thousand other venture capital firms are looking, chasing after many of the same companies. That's right. That's right. So, and, and and companies that, you know, may fall out of favor as well that we might have a unique perspective on. A uh, company like uh, Jackpocket, which is actually bringing the yeah. uh, online uh, mobile lottery. So it's kind of a funny fact that the lottery is an $80 billion business. 
virtually zero of that is transacted online. I mean, there aren't that many $80 billion businesses where they aren't touched online. Yet what they're doing is bringing it to the mobile phone so that you don't have to run down to the 7-Eleven every time the jackpot becomes you know huge. And so that's an interesting company, which I know boggles, I think, most people's minds when I tell them. Yeah. They're like, you can't buy a lottery ticket on, on your mobile phone? I'm like, yeah. no, you can't. And and I was like, when's the last time you tried? And they're like, oh, that's right. That's true. So, you know, that's an example of a lot of, uh, comp- you know, a lot of firms on Sandal Road that, you know, won't touch that uh, company. Yeah, and, for sure. And, yeah. and we think it's an amazing opportunity. As we were on the break, we were talking about what's the competitive environment among VC firms today. I mean, based on the data that I've compiled when I teach classes here at, at Wharton, it's just been an explosion of new firms. And, and that's just in the in the category of venture capital firms, big firms and small firms. But then you also have uh, all these new players entering into the sandbox. You've got, you know, what we call non-traditional investors like pension funds and insurance companies and even investment banks. And then you also have these new, uh, you have crowdfunding platforms, you have accelerators and incubators. It's like suddenly it makes your head hurt because everyone is chasing after deals. So with that, with that, um, with that prefatory note, Kerry, I mean, how do you guys compete in the current hypercharged environment? Yeah, I, <laughs> we, well, I can withdraw the question. We could try something. Let's talk about our health and the weather. <laughs> I mean, it's that's. That, I think that's one of the things that makes uh, the Bay Area so fun is that it's always changing, right? Yeah, uh, and it changes quickly. So when I look at the venture landscape 10 years ago, it's so vastly different than it is today. I will say though, that for the top deals, they're still going to the top firms. So you'll see Kleiner and Sequoia and Benchmark still it's back. Like, it's like there's a club. Almost. There is a club. I mean, they share deal flow for sure. Exactly. And so oftentimes when I tell you know prospective limited partners about what we do, I always tell people, you shouldn't think of Silicon Valley as a valley. You should really think of it as Silicon Village. As a community. As a community. Yeah. And you're either in the community or you're not. And so you're right. There are so many other forms of financing, but the best deals and the top deals are still by far in a way funded by the top firms. And so for us as a small fund, we're able to just grab a small piece of the fund and be helpful uh, as much as we can. Um, I would say that what's changed dramatically is a lot of these firms are so much bigger than they ever were in terms of fund size yeah. as well as multiple asset classes. And so you have Sequoia who has a late stage fund and an early stage fund and global funds, right? You've got Kleiner that has a, a growth stage fund and early stage fund. And it's all about, you know, AUM, right? Assets under management. Right. And about, again, uh, multiple uh, playing at different stages. For us, we're a $100 million fund. We have the opportunity to be helpful and not piggish about how much capital we invest in each company. So, so what? I mean, so you're focused on enterprise software, Kerry. Yeah. What, what do you bring? So, when you're sitting down side by side with somebody at Andreessen Horowitz, and you're talking to a, a prospective portfolio company, I mean, what do you bring to the table, Kerry? That you know, a big, a big institutional firm like Andreessen or Kleiner or Sequoia or NEA doesn't bring. Yeah. So I think two things. One, um, you know, I've been doing this for 15 years. Uh, all I've been focused on over those 15 years is enterprise software. And so at the point in which we invest in companies, 
um, really good at helping CEOs scale and build a repeatable sales model. So even though you're conductive as a small boutique firm, and in fact, you're bringing as much firepower from an experience standpoint as anybody at any of the big firms. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And so I really focus on how do you go from being a $5 million revenue business to a $15 million to a 45 to a hundred. Mm-hmm. And there aren't that many investors around who have seen the whole whole process, you know, play out uh, to an IPO. I've seen that multiple times with multiple companies having invested in, you know, you know, over 30 companies, uh, you know, over my 15 years. So how's it going? So, so you've been in with, with the new, with Panasonic as the, as I could say, the long pole in the 10 having, yep. an, and you've got a hundred million in dry powder. Yep. How is it going so far? Have you been able to attract the, the kind of deal flow you need in order to land an investment in, in a specific handful of companies? Yes. The answer is yes. I, I would say that the deal flow has been probably five to 10 X better than I would have ever wow, imagined after great. we hung our yeah. own shingle. We have eight investments that we've made so far in the space of a year, in the space of a year. And we've already that's deployed. A, that's astounding. That's great. Yeah, yeah. We, well, we had some, we had some catch up, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, we've deployed 40% of our fund already. And so it probably won't be too long until we start looking at fund two officially. So that's a nice segue in, into my next question. Yeah. Because if we had had this conversation six weeks ago, when the stock market was climbing up and up and up without without change, uh, I mean, the sky was the limit. Everything was, I mean, you could do no wrong. That tide raised everybody's boat. Sure. Now suddenly, you know, you're seeing, I don't, I haven't followed it in the last few days, but there is discussion about whether it, we're, we're going into a correction territory, which is a drop of more than 10%, mm-hmm. or ba- in fact, into bear territory, which is a drop of more than 20%. But in any event, stock market has definitely cooled off. Mm-hmm. And when you've got volatility like this, that that changes everything in terms of how the markets behave, how companies think about their futures in terms of cash burn, how investors think about sticking money into companies that may not have a, as assured a ride going forward. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm talking too much. What do you think about this? So when we started about a year, year and a half ago, uh, my partner and I said, look, we're approaching one of the longest bull markets in history and the tides will turn. We don't know when, but eventually it will. And so how do we think about the types of companies that we invest in? How do we think about the valuations that we're investing at and what happens if the tides do turn, right? That means that will definitely impact our fundraising, our ability to f- raise an next fund. It will definitely impact uh, our portfolio companies in terms of how they respond or react to um, changing market conditions. So, so I want to I want to clarify a point. Yeah. So the, the the fact is, it takes, on average, it takes a company almost ten years today from date of first funding to the date, if it chooses to do an IPO, to the date of the IPO. That's 10 years. That is a long way away. Right. So the question is, why Why do you even care, Kerry, about the, the public equity markets? Because you're investing in companies that are you know, emerging from their Series A into their expansion stage, their Series B, which is, you know, they're still in best case, if you play the averages, eight years away from a public market. Yeah. So why do you care? Or well, why why does it impact the way you think about or the way investors think about uh, portfolio investments? So the reason is, uh, you're right. I mean, 
in in most cases, VCs are really good at micro, um, and, yeah. and the public markets are really great at macro. Yeah. For us, the way we think about it is, you know, kind of what does every one-term president want? A second term, right? What yeah. does every first fund manager want? A second fund. Yeah. And okay. So it's absolutely <laughs> critical for us. We're trying our best not to screw it up, basically. And so the way we think about our companies for the long run is if certain things happen to the economy, how would our companies react and respond to those things in the near term, which obviously has impacts on how they raise their next round of funding, right? Do they even get a next round of funding? Um, all the companies that we invest in are rarely, if ever, profitable at the time we invest in them. So they all have going concerns, meaning that they have to raise a next fund when they reach their milestones. And if they don't, then everything gets reset, which means that our valuations and the price that we're carrying these companies at on our books also get reset, which again, kind of one thing leads to another impacts our ability to raise. So that tide really does change everybody's position, even though you're seven to 10 years away from it public. Of course. Of course. Um, So how do you think about, I mean, has it affected your thinking today? As you watch, I mean, today the stock market was up, I don't know, 300 points. You know, last week it was, I've, you know, there was a day when it was down 500. I mean, it, it's, it makes your head hurt to watch it, so I don't. <laughs> but you have to, I assume. Or, I mean, how has it affected your, your thinking about making investments? To be honest, I mean, I, I'm aware. I will say I'm aware of what's going on in yep. the overall public markets, but I don't pay so close attention to it that it affects my day-to-day operation. So I'm definitely aware and keen on what's going on at a very high level. I've even seen the impacts of you know the the trade war, for example, and, oh, yeah. and how our companies respond. Meaning, they've actually began onshoring. I know there's a truce that was announced today, but I yeah. mean they've even begun onshoring some of the production uh, because to, to mitigate that yeah, risk to to respond to that. Yeah. Um, so it's very interesting how you know the things that happen at a macro level do trickle down and impact our companies. But from a fund perspective, you know, we really do, really do think about things in the long run, in the long term, at least five to yeah. seven years out. But we are definitely aware of what's going on in the public markets and how that impacts, you know, our companies, the policies uh, that our government, you know, supports. Uh, definitely, definitely uh, makes an impact for sure. For people just joining us, this is Bay Area Ventures. I'm Doug Collum. Our guest this hour is Kerry Lai who's the managing director of um, Conductive Ventures, which is a, a recently formed venture capital firm. So, Kerry, what are some other, what are some other trends or dynamics that you're seeing in the marketplace? One, one that comes immediately to mind is the value, pre-money valuations that companies are commanding. When you approach a company and, you, you know, and you're sitting there across the table from the founder looking steely-eyed about what you think that company is worth and what the founder thinks the company is worth, how, I mean, what's going on in that area? It's interesting. When I look at our eight companies, it's probably no surprise that in response to those high valuations, we haven't invested a lot in Bay Area companies. Only two of the eight companies are actually in the Bay Area. The rest of the companies oh. are in New York, Austin, Boston, Chicago. Wow. So you guys travel. Unlike most Sand Hill Road VCs, <laughs> that's how we find better value. Um is we are on planes a lot. So valuations are, are kind of idiosyncratic just to the Bay Area, that if you get outside and 
Go to Chicago or New York or Atlanta. You can find better companies with lower pre-money valuations. Just like you could find a much cheaper home. <laughs> oh, yeah. I get it. <laughs> yes. So you are traveling a ton. We are traveling a ton. Yeah. Can you maintain that? I mean, that that is a a business strategy, which, I mean, it's it doesn't scale well with two co-founder, two managing directors in the firm. Yeah. We're going to see how long that lasts. Um, I would say that it's, it's not, you know, look, we, we'd love to just drive, uh, to, you know, our board meetings, uh, up in San Francisco. And I do have a portfolio company in San Francisco, but yeah, you know, that's taking an hour and a half each way these yeah, days. So I could easily fly to LA for the same amount yeah. of time and probably for the same Uber yeah. <laughs> that I take up to the city. <laughs> right. So we're really looking at, can you build quality companies? And, and we are seeing quality companies, uh, all across the U S right. We're seeing, tech centers being built. Um, you've got Amazon HQ2 that's going to be in New York, uh, well, at least part of it in New yep, York as yep. well. So we're seeing, you know, lots of great companies being built outside the barrier and for, you know, much more fair at, at much more fair prices. Um, Bayer is just a really expensive place um, to hire people. Um, the amount of cash and equity you have to offer someone to leave Google, Facebook is, it's it's loony. It's absolutely loony. You know, I, I used to think, uh, being as parochial that I that I am, that the Bay Area was kind of the center of gravity in terms of um, all the heat and light dollars and deals, venture capital dollars and deals in in the, in the world. And my sense is that that's starting to change. And in fact, the Bay Area is becoming a victim of its own success. And is that? I mean, would you say that's accurate, or do you have a different take on it? I, I mean. You know, in California, I mean, I've been in California. I was born and raised in Los Angeles. I went, went to school here. I yeah. lived here uh, my entire life. I love California. But we make it so hard to do business here. Uh, right? As a From, regulatory matter or just because of the... Period. I mean, yeah. it's expensive living here. Everything. Everything. I mean, our transportation is subpar. Uh, we tax people up the wazoo yep. here. It's it's a really hostile environment to do business in California, yet Silicon Valley is still thriving despite all of that. I know. It's right? pretty amazing. Unless, I mean, look, I mean, there's so many problems, There's but there's so many good things here. I mean, the trends, uh, the ability to move quickly and do things um, with other people, people that are, this is just a very unique place that can't be re replicated anywhere else. And so it's no surprise to me that, you see some of the best companies, the best trends built here. Um, and I think you're going to see, you know, other companies do well in other areas, but I think that the Bay area is literally where it's at. That's where the majority of the funding is. And I think will be for a long time. Let, let me ask you a related question. A again, this is an opportunity. We don't have that many VCs here in the program. So this is an opportunity for me to unload. When you invest in a company, um, I mean, you're, you're saddled as a managing director and as the founder of the firm, and you've got LPs who are kind of looking at you. When you invest in a company, do you have an expectation as to when you're going to achieve an exit? I mean, do you sit there across the table from the founder that you just invested in? And is there an understanding, either spoken or not, that you know we're expecting you to achieve some sort of an exit, whether it's a sale of the company or an IPO, or maybe taking advantage of the second, the private secondary markets. Is that expectation set when you when you invest in the company? Of course, a hundred percent. I have those very. Do you, do you articulate it? I have direct conversations uh, with do. the founder. Yeah, we're completely aligned with the founder. I always ask them, "What do you want to do with this company?" And, and 
if someone came to offer you $500 million, would you take that offer? And we completely align ourselves with the entrepreneur, 100%. Uh, my partner and I, we backwards calculate, okay, if this company sells in three years, can we deliver X multiple in return? We sell it in four years, can we deliver X? What does that come down to from an IRR perspective? Um, we're constantly thinking about from the moment we return, we invest in the company. So, so what if the founder says, I don't, I, I like this company. This is, you know, this is, this is my sandbox. I created it. I don't plan on selling this thing unless there's some need to do so. I would like to grow this and see it remain autonomous. And what that means implicitly is that at some point, I mean, you can't stay private forever, right? I mean, is have you ever had that conversation? I mean, this is a longer conversation, but it's... I've never had any entrepreneur tell me that they want to stay private and that they want to be poor forever. So I'm wondering, because I do remember there was a company called SurveyMonkey, is a company called yes. SurveyMonkey, and the yes. CEO yep. uh, made this statement publicly. We have no plans ever to go public. Right. Uh, we just want to remain autonomous. There, no, there investors waiting in line to put money into the company and then they took a bunch of money from a bunch of investors and they did yeah they so did. i my view is that anytime you accept money from an investor there's an implicit promise that there's going to be an exit of some Correct. sort yep and you in turn carrie have to turn that promise over to the founder and it's understood, I think, that there has to, even for employees holding options in the company, yeah. there needs to be a way to monetize that that stock. It's so hard for a CEO to remain private forever. Yeah. Like you said, there there's going to be pressure from investors. Yeah. There's going to be pressure from their own employees to get liquid, right? Because people want to actually own a home in the Bay Area, <laughs> despite how expensive yeah. it is. I mean, you just got to live at some point. Yeah. And it just costs a certain amount to live here. So it's... I find it so incredibly difficult for a company to turn down uh, an exit, uh, an opportunity to to make money. Yeah. It, I've, I think, um, you know, just life kind of uh, is what happens. It's, it's called money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we we've got just a few more minutes left, but and this is not a fat pitch, but I did want to ask you this question, and I'm, this truly is not a fat pitch. How important has it been to you to have an MBA? I mean, I can come up with a lot of reasons why not to have one, but yeah. um, from your perspective, given the fact you went to, you know, IVP and then you went to Intel Capital and then you had a run at a, a small, short-lived VC firm, and now you've got Conductive, could you could you equally have done what you're doing now if you didn't have this this MBA credential? What what do you see as the value of that? I think the biggest value of an MBA is the network. Right. Um, you know, the things that you do five, 10, 15 years down the line. Uh, my partner went to HBS, um, you know, also a good school, maybe not as good as Wharton, but, no, also, good, not, yeah. but also a great school. And we've had so many valuable connections. So uh, less, the, less the learning from the classroom. I'm not offended by this, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but less the learning from the classroom than the, than the relationships. Yeah, the, the relationships the- are the things that are so invaluable. It de- I think it depends on what you do as a career, but it's the application of it, right? Like even in your class, the majority of the students won't become VCs. That's right. And so their ability to build a pro forma cap table in 30 minutes, probably not going to happen for the majority of them. Yeah. But that's okay. I mean, I think the, the general exposure 
uh, sort of enough to make you dangerous is sort of the educational value. It's kind of, of issue spotting. It gives yeah, you exactly. that, that ability. Just to know yeah. that, hey, I'll need to contact this person if I ever do this startup. Like yeah. I'm going to go call, you know, Carrie, because I, I was in class with them and he's the VC. He's going to tell me. I still get those calls. Hey, these are my options. Are they priced right? I get those calls all the time yeah. and I'm happy to do it. It's, it's easy. Um, and so, you know, I think that's the value, I, but I will say kind of, as you get further and further along in your career, the value is really the network people in different places. I mean, the people I was an, an analyst with in banking, they're now MDs now at their res, and you know, respective you, banks. And, which, and you still have the ability to reach out and say, Hey, remember me back from, yeah. That? yeah. And, and yeah. I mean, we were kids literally when we first started, yeah. but now they're general partners at other firms and that's, that's valuable. Hey, um, we've got maybe a minute left. You know, the, it's kind of the, the cliche question I always throw out. There are people listening in who, who want to start their own companies and want to raise capital. Yeah. What, what do you tell them? I would say, uh, like I kind of maybe started from the very beginning, the best time to raise capital is when you're not fundraising. So if you just raised your seed round of funding, don't just be heads down and build product and get sales and pop your head up eight months later and say, Hey, here I am. Look what I built. I'm like, I haven't even talked to you in eight months. Like really reach out, be very methodical. This is 100% a sales process. And the more you get in front of people, the more you can build touch points, the more trust you can build. And the, that's the path that you're paving to make fundraising that much easier. And it's a wisdom that continues to bear fruit. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, we are out of time, as I suspect. I mean, the hour always flies by. Uh, I've been speaking this hour with Kerry Lai, the founding member and managing director of Conductive Ventures. Kerry, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Uh, so where can people go to learn more about Conductive? You can go to our website at www.conductive.vc. You can email me at kerry at conductive.vc. Great. I'm Doug Collum. You're listening to Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.